Hello, and welcome to the East Screen, West Screen podcast. This is the show where we talk about films from Hong Kong to Hollywood and some other stuff in between. I'm your host, Paul Fox, uh, sitting in lockdown in South Florida, and coming to us from his reviews desk in Hong Kong is my good friend, Mr. Kevin Ma. Paul, I Kevin. missed you, man. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yes, it's been a while. Uh, if you keep up with this show at all, you'll notice we haven't had much activity uh, for almost a year and a month. Um, we uh, went on hiatus, and that was mostly my decision, um, in part without getting into too much of the nitty gritty. Um, had a couple of close personal family losses within the span of uh, about nine months, and. It just got to the point to where I was just like a little bit overwhelmed and um, wasn't able to get out and see a lot of movies. And I just, I, I had to step away from everything and and take some time. And Kevin was gracious enough to give me time. And uh, he's been busy doing stuff. We're going to talk a little bit about what he's been up to. Um, I did have the good fortune to get back to Hong Kong uh, once uh, during the, our year-long hiatus. And that was last summer, just as all the craziness was kicking off with the protests and um i was there with the yunlong you know black night or long night as they sometimes refer to it um i wasn't in yunlong thankfully but i could have been uh you know and some scary stuff was happening while we were there and it just got scarier and scarier as, as uh, the months went on so that's probably stuff to talk about on a different podcast and there's been lots of shows and news programs and internet programs covering a lot of what's been going on in the Hong Kong um, protest side of things. And now we have this coronavirus, which, you know, for me, is like kind of like SARS 2.0 because I was in Hong Kong during SARS and I was fortunate enough to learn a couple lessons about, you know, the, the way to behave and things. So I was a little bit ahead of the curve here trying to tell my family, you know, I think we need to kind of need to get ready and, and to do some preparation um, for, for what we saw as the thing that was coming. And um, that's been, you know, somewhat beneficial for us in terms of just, you know, having supplies. We were sending supplies to friends and family in Hong Kong um, as they started needing stuff. And now the reverse is true um, because it's come here with like gangbusters and they are now sending us some stuff, uh, which is, uh, you know, just, it's great that that's the way the world works when you've got friends and family you can rely on. A lot of people don't. And, um, I hope that if you're listening to this, you're not part of that group. Cause I know this is hitting pe people across the world in, in a very, very hard way. Um, but yeah, we go away for a year and the world goes to pot. So, <laughs> I guess, you know, uh, we're back and maybe things will get better. Maybe not, uh, but we can hope. But beyond that, uh, another thing that kind of uh, pushed me off of the podcast for a bit was on the tech side of things. I had been recording with my MacBook Pro from 2009 when we first started the show, uh, the same little powerhouse of a MacBook Pro. And it was really starting to uh, just give up the ghost. Uh, I had done a recording last year with uh, our good friend Kenneth Brorson. And during that show where uh, I was doing the recording, uh, for whatever reason, the recording just kicked out. It just stopped recording altogether halfway through the show. And fortunately, professional guy that he is as a podcaster, uh, 
whether he's a guest or, of course, when he's the host, he's recording on his side as well. So he thankfully had a recording of what was going on, even though I was the one who was uh, doing the show. And he was able to send me his side, and I was able to patch some stuff together to, to put that out. But I realized then and there that it's going to be hard to really do these shows if this is going to be something I've got to worry about going forward. Um, because that's something, you know, when you're on the air and you're you know, kind of talking things through and you're also monitoring the production side of things and, and making sure the software is running uh, and things aren't working well, it can be kind of hectic. That was another thing that was kind of bugging me and I didn't have the money at the time to really upgrade everything the way that I wanted to. So over this past year, I've slowly been, you know, allocating uh, bits of money here and there to get some new tech. So we're looking at a new system, a new microphone, and hopefully this will come out to all your ears and sound as good as ever. So that's a lot of what's been going on with me and my side um, over the past year as we've had a lot of changes and seen a lot of changes happening uh, in the world. Changes have happened with you too, Kevin. I mean, you've gone from being somebody who worked for somebody to being somebody who worked more for yourself. And, you know, tell us a bit about Kevin Incorporated and what all happened there. <laughs> um, the last time we recorded, did I already uh, become a freelancer? I don't know if... We may have mentioned it, but I, I don't really remember if you had talked a lot about, um, you know, the, the move was, and, and, and what you were doing. I mean, you've had changes for sure since then, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I'll tell the whole story. I mean, so before this, I was, if you guys remember, I was doing, uh, I was the entertainment editor of Discovery Magazine for uh, Cathay Pacific. And then in uh, late March, I think, I think I left uh yeah, I think I left early April. So last year I left um, to become a full-time freelancer because I was um, getting quite a few subtitling opportunities. And the way that my life was operating was that I would get out of work and then I would work on the translations. And then um, and I would go – and then sometimes, you know, if I had to go to the film companies to watch films, I had to go to the – I had to go with them at night, which inconvenienced a lot of my clients. And I figured I was getting more of those jobs and I really should try and concentrate on one of those for my health. So I decided to do the – take the leap and become a full-time freelancer to do this. Then, of course, a couple of months later, the whole protesting broke out and that really stalled the film industry. And now you have the coronavirus, which has completely stopped the film industry. Um, but anyway, what happened was I started my own company, even though it's really for mainly technical stuff. But the company is called Zagaten Media. Um, is it, uh, I want to say Z because I used to saying that in Hong Kong, but it's actually Z because we're an American podcast. But anyway, Z-A-K-K-A-T-E-N. Media. It's a company I started with my good friend Maggie Lee, who um, is also was also a really really um, experienced translator herself. But she she wants to use the company to do bigger things, which she's working on. But I'm using it as a way to um, so as a as a translation firm really to do to take on film translations. Um, so anything with scripts subtitles, um, synopsis, you know, press kits, things like that. That's the stuff that I've been doing anyway for the past nine years. And I just decided to do it full time. So I get more free time to myself at home and I can work from home and I get more sleep, which is nice. Um, and yeah, that's pretty much it. Business have been all right, considering 
all the big things that's happened so far in the past year. Um, we've done a couple of pretty big films uh, along the way. We have at least four films that are in the Hong Kong Film Awards this year, um, which I guess I can plug at the end of the show because most of those films still haven't come out yet. Um, so we have quite a films on the, on the pipeline. And we're still getting some projects along the way, even though the film industry has stopped. So I'm very, very thankful for that. Um, otherwise, personal life. I mean, I had been traveling quite a bit before we went before this whole lockdown happened. Um, I was going to film festivals as usual, you know, uh, Busan and, and Taiwan and all those. And I was supposed to be I'm supposed to be in Udine next week, even though, of course, it's not happening now. It's uh, it's been delayed to the end of June which I hope is still happening, uh, despite the current situation. Um, but yeah, I, that's the biggest change is that I've stopped traveling. I haven't traveled. I've been taking a flight in three months, which sounds kind of like, uh, yeah, I know most people don't even take more than a flight at once a year. Meanwhile, I'm like, oh my God, three months. I've been grounded three months. Um, but yeah, I, I, except for the added flexibility and the decreased income, you know, two jobs to one job means you pretty much make it only half the money. Um, but still, I'm, I'm surviving and um, I haven't starved yet. Uh, and otherwise, uh, no, I haven't gotten married. I haven't got anyone pregnant. I haven't bought a house. I haven't, uh, fortunately, knock wood, um, my family is still doing all right. So, yeah, that's 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 about it. And that's big news. I mean, that's uh, it's it's great that you've been able to make sort of that leap away from working for demand and uh, working for yourself. And I guess, you know, I'm guessing that Discovery probably not doing so great right about now. I mean, because most of the airlines are grounded and I'm guessing that content creators for those airlines probably on hiatus as well. What would be your take on that? Well, I was getting writing jobs with Discovery. Um, uh, pretty much like one article, a couple of articles for, a few months there and in um the i think when was it december or january starting from the uh february issue they started hard at asking me to write more because they expanded the entertainment section which i thought yeah great awesome amazing um but then this whole thing happened and um i think i'm not sure if i'm allowed to talk about internal policies but what i know is that um the magazine will not be printed for at least three months now. Uh, so so I've lost that job. Uh, but then the thing is, you know, there's a bigger, the whole company Cedar, who I used to work for, they have a much bigger issue to worry because I think all of their magazines have stopped and that's a huge part of their business. So without magazines to print, um, I, I don't know. I, I think they're in, uh, they're in quite a big um, thing and again i'm not sure if i'm I, I, i'm not sure of how much i'm allowed to to talk about um but yeah as far as i know I, I mean this is the thing that's i mean this is not really a secret among the whole industry anyway because there was a whole article uh, last couple weeks ago about how all the american in-flight magazines have stopped printing you know big the big ones united delta and um american and i think one magazine already um laid off the staff. I think the Delta ones already laid off the staff saying it's not coming back. But as far as I know, Cathay one is currently just on hiatus and it's really on a month to month basis. And hopefully when things recover, um, things will be all right. I mean, the thing is in-flight magazines will always be needed. If it's not to, uh, just not to, I mean, it's a, it's a good content marketing, 
um, tool, right, is to encourage because these are essentially travel magazines and they encourage people to travel more and therefore buy more plane tickets. So it will always have uh, a purpose, I think, within that industry. So I hope that it will come back and not just because one day I'll hope to get to write for it again. But really, I think I think in-flight magazines is just a really great thing when done right. And I think Cedar really did it right. And talking about work coming our way, I do want to say a big thanks to Kenneth Brorson, friend of the show, who's uh, also been a guest spot on several episodes. And he uh, went to great lengths to keep me in, in podcasting over the past year by graciously inviting me on to guest host uh, a couple episodes. And I believe he had you on as well, Kevin. And so that yep. uh, I, you know, the, the, the podcasting skills wouldn't get too rusty uh, during our hiatus. And uh, um, if you listen to his show, we actually got together briefly for a small reunion and a sort of a Christmas wish to everybody out there um, for their Christmas episode last year. But this is the first time we've really gotten a chance to talk deeply since then and really since uh, last summer when we were together and we only unfortunately got together for uh one movie and that wasn't even a hong kong movie that was uh, uh makoto shinkai's uh weathering with you if i remember correctly right um, <laughs> yeah, kind, yeah kind of scrambled on my my last full day in hong kong to get together to watch that as it had a uh, early release there um and that was fun but we're going to be talking uh, about a couple of things this week. Uh, we're going to be uh, probably forgoing the news segment that we used to do for a little bit and maybe keep this as a bit more of a shorter and uh, concise series for a while. Um, we're going to be talking about the new Netflix film Tiger Tail and giving a review of that in just a bit. Um, but I do want to talk a little bit about some of the stuff that we've been watching. I guess if I was going to make another recommendation, uh, recent recommendation, I'm not going to talk about Tiger King because I know that's everywhere and it's got a Florida, <laughs> Florida connection and I'm sorry. You know, it's just, it's, it's, it's crazy. It's craziness. It, you, you can watch it and you can talk about it because it's the talking of the thing to talk about at the moment, but it's just insanity. Um, but I want to talk a little about a little bit of anime because the spring anime season has kind of kicked off in the past couple of weeks. And um, one of my favorites of all time is a show called, or it's based on a manga, it's called Fruits Basket. It's this crazy kind of romantic comedy, situation comedy kind of a thing. Um, very typical shoujo manga th style. Early on, it started off, I thought, kind of basing itself a little bit off of uh, the Ranma one half series because you've got characters who get transformed into animals. They're the Zodiac animals. Um, and there's 13 of them. I know there's supposed to be 12, if you understand the, the 12 Zodiac animals, but there's a 13th one uh, that's integral to the story. And you learn about why that one is not included among the 12. And anyway, it, you know, it's a lot of interpersonal Japanese relationships like shoujo manga tend to be. But this one's very fun, and it really kind of leaves that supernatural aspect to the side. I want to say not even not even a quarter of the way through the series and really just starts focusing on the character relationships. And, and that sort of supernatural side of it is just kind of there in the margins and, and not all up in your face um, like a lot of shows might be. So uh, they just started their season two, and this is a reboot of the series because when they, f they there's an original anime series from um, I want to say late 90s early 2000s where 
um, like many popular manga, um, the manga hadn't finished. And so the anime kind of ran out of story and started going in a different direction uh, than the manga ultimately went to. But now the manga has finished. There are 12 massive volumes that are out there that you can find fairly easily. Um, local libraries, if you're in the States, uh, may have a lot of them. Ours, ours did. That's where I tracked down the remaining few to finish up the reading. So it's a com- series that's complete and it ends and you don't have to wait for, you know, t- to catch up with it or wait for it to catch up with a writer or an author like you have to do with a lot of popular series today. So they just launched their season two last week and it's probably going to be about, you know, uh, 20 weeks. Uh, last summer was the season one. So that's there. If you want to stay something that's Stay with something that's fairly current and at least for now is still being kind of simulcast between uh, Japanese screen times and uh, simulcasts in the West or on platforms like uh, Crunchyroll or Funimation. Uh, may not be for everyone because, like I said, it's in the shoujo genre, um, which tends to focus on, you know, romance stories, girls, comics, that kind of thing. But um, if you're not averse to that kind of stuff, if you like kind of romantic comedies with a slight supernatural twist to them. Uh, I think it's something that you should definitely check out. And I really recommend it because if you get into it and you really like the story, um, and even if you get all the way up to current where it's week to week and you don't want to wait, you can go out there and you can get the remaining manga volumes and you can finish out the story and and see where it's going. Um, So there's that. Uh, Kevin, you want to talk to us about the chef show, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, now that so I'm doing a West screen thing, really. Sorry, because I've been at home so much, uh, even though I've got like tons of streaming services, I got Hulu and your Criterion channel and your Netflix and all that stuff. I, I can't it's hard for me to get myself to watch to binge through movies the way that I can at a cinema. You know, when I go to a film festival, I do like four movies a day. Right? OK, now because let's be fair. You're sleeping thing. through a lot of those. So. No, okay, at least 30%, maybe. You haven't seen me sleep in a theater in a long time, Paul, so that's, you don't have true, to prove. That's true, <laughs> But But, yeah, it, it's just been easier to watch TV at home because, you know, when you eat, you turn on a TV program, you commit yourself for 45 minutes, an hour, and that's it, right? So I've been watching a lot more TV, and, um, and especially shows where people do stuff that you – you've been doing but you can't do anymore so like the chef show is a show on netflix and it's by john favreau who you remember did a film called chef a couple years ago that was a big sort of indie return or return indie and on that film he played a a chef who opens a food truck after he gets fired from his um, luxury restaurant so on that film he had a mentor his name is roy Choi, and he uh he was kind of like the pioneer of food trucks uh, out in LA. So he was brought on as like, you know, John Favreau's uh, master, essentially cooking master and a food consultant and became a producer um, of the film uh, because he did so much. But now a few years later, um, they're reuniting because um, John is still kind of his Roy's um, like disciple. So they travel together to different places. They revisit some of the places that where they did chef. So, some of the like the barbecue place in Texas and um, they talk to some stars like in the first batch, um, the cast of Avengers shows up and they all sit together and talk about food. And now they're getting to a point where they're just traveling different places and cooking. So the last episode I watched, which is the fifth one of 
season two, I think, or season batch two of season one. Yeah, I know these all really naming conventions are weird. But anyways, the fifth episode of that one, um, Roy and John, they go to the Skywalker Ranch because uh, John Favreau was doing post-production of the Lion King there. And Skywalker Ranch is a huge farm. So this whole thing where they just gather a lot of fruits from the farm and they take over the, the, the hotel kitchen because Skywalker Ranch, of course, has its own hotel. Um, all that George Lucas money, right? So they just cook and they cook and cook and cook. At one point, um, one of the directors and writers on The Mandalorian shows up and he helps cook. And it's just a really fun show. And, you know, you, you kind of see them discovering this joy of cooking it's not like david chan show where because david is david chan is a celebrity chef right so all he does now is just travel around and talk about food but on the chef show you see them actually really getting down and dirty because john is really eager to impress his master so he's always trying to help and you know you got chefs teaching them to do things and they're getting their hands dirty and cooking and this is a really fun show to watch um so that's something i really recommend um for people who like foodie shows uh because there's just ton of foodie shows on netflix right but i think this one is my favorite um the other show i'm watching uh because i'm a vpn and uh bbc iplayer uh, in the UK, is actually free for viewers if you have an account. And I know the whole thing about TV license and paying your part. But, okay, I anyway, I got it to work, and I'm in the BBC iPlayer, and I've been watching this reality show called Race Across the World. Um, I'm actually on season two. I haven't watched season one yet, which is, I think it's also on the BBC iPlayer. But anyway, um, Race Across the World is kind of like The Amazing Race. I, I haven't seen The Amazing Race in about two decades. So I don't remember, but if I remember correctly, a lot of that show is about doing these scavenger hunt missions as they travel across city to city, right? I think I think that's how it worked. Um, but Race Across the World is a very interesting concept. The concept is that um, modern people fly so much that getting from point A to point B, we forget everything that we fly over when we get there and the beauty and all the, all the um, destinations that along the way. So the idea is that six teams, uh, six pairs of people, you got a brother and sister, you got a, a mother and his son and her son, sorry, her son. And you've got, of course, a married couple and you've got a uncle and his nephew. Um, just these ordinary British people, they've given a very limited budget. Uh, I think like a thousand British pounds or something. And, they, in season two, they have to travel from Mexico City, uh, which is considered North America, I think. And they have to go down, only travel by land or sea, down to um, the southest point in Argentina, which is apparently, even when flying, it takes 20 hours. So that's a huge distance to cover. And the entire show, all they have to do is just travel from, they have to travel to various checkpoints along the way just to, you know, guide them the right way. And whoever gets and just a race to get to checkpoints and checkpoints and checkpoints. Um, and they and they have to do this on this very limited budget. So along the way, they can do um, they can take on part time jobs um, that have been sort of um, offered to them, may, have been made available by producers. So if they need to replenish their funds, they can stop. But that's at the risk of losing the race. And. Of course, the teams also want to take detours to tourist destinations and so forth along the way. And so that gives you a chance to live vicariously through them to see some very, very beautiful places uh, along Central and South America. 
Yeah, and it's a very interesting behind-the-scenes stuff is that they ran into so much sort of political and social turmoil in these countries along the way that five of the seven checkpoints had to be changed last minute. So you see in this unfold real time as teams are trying to make get to a place and then, oh, no, wait, we can't go there anymore. Or, oh, no, we can't travel to this jungle. We have to go to this. And this just feels like a real backpacking adventure. You know, there's no silly scavenger hunt. There's no, you know, missions to divert to divert them. It's just pure travel. And and I think um, it really reminds me of what that adventure feels like. You know, the adventure spirit of the backpacker. I mean, I'm never going to do a trip like that. The first season, by the way, they went from London to Singapore without flying. So imagine how insane the distance is that. I mean, how insane that whole journey would be. I haven't watched it yet. But yeah, it's just a really fascinating um, travel show um, or reality show uh, or competition show, whatever it is you want to call it. And just something about the BBC, you know, it just sounds classier, doesn't it, when they do it? So yeah, he, he, I recommend the show he, uh, greatly. If you guys have a chance to see it, take, uh, take, a, take a chance. All right, there you have it. A couple of recommendations for, you know, what we've been watching, what's been keeping us entertained uh, during this period. If you've got stuff that you'd like to recommend, we'd be happy for you to drop us a line and let us know your thoughts as well. East Green, West Green. And welcome back. So this week for our review, we're talking about the Netflix film Tiger Tail. So, Kevin, tell us a little bit about this new Netflix feature. So, Tiger Tail is the feature film directorial debut of Alan Yang. Um, if you follow Netflix shows, you know that he's the uh, co-creator of Master of None, the one who didn't commit the sexual offense, by the way. Um, the good guy, so to speak. Um, and he also co-created Forever on Amazon, which is um, really excellent I guess underrated. I think it's really underwatched. No one ever talks about that show, but I really love the concept of that show. But yeah, that's that show is Amazon. So both really excellent shows, and he's he's one of the sort of um, and top. He's, he's worked on uh, the Good Place. I think he's got some credits there as well. Oh really? Yeah. Oh really? All right. So so he's one of the most fascinating. I think creator, not just Asian American creators, but just really a fascinating uh, creator of stuff. But this is first. This is a sort of a. A very personal story because um, he's tackling the story of his father um, and I guess it's an Asian American thing and because that's a big thing now I think this year we already had um, so last two a year and a half ago we had Crazy Rich Asians and then we had um, The Farewell and then early this year at Sundance we have Minari which won uh, the top prize and now we have Tiger Tail which didn't get into Sundance and didn't win a prize and you will realize that for good reason why Anyway, the synopsis, uh, Ping Ray, it's a small boy who living in a small town in Huwei County. This is where the, the, the film's title come from, by the way. Huwei literally means tiger tail. Uh, when he was a child, he meets the love of his life, Yuan. Uh, however, to realize his dream of going to the U.S., Ping Ray, as an adult, marries Jin Jin, the daughter of his factory owner, Boss. Decades later, Ping Ray reflects on his journey. Um, so this is apparently a very personal film. It's loosely based on his father's story. Um, I guess his father is Taiwanese and had the whole immigration experience and Alan Yang is born in America. 
The problem is that Yang doesn't speak a lick of Chinese and he's never lived in Taiwan. Apparently he was um, inspired to make the film after taking a trip to Taiwan with his father. So it's like saying, oh, I want to make a Hong, I want to make a, Hong, uh, a film about Kowloon Wall City after taking a one-week trip to Hong Kong. So that's, you can imagine how that's going to work. Um, so a lot of the films are done in flashback. There's a whole section that's set in Taiwan, and those scenes are shot on 16mm film. They look really great. I love films that are shot on film. But um, the problem is that they really feel inauthentic. Um, the way he approaches uh, 1970s Taiwan, I think, I suspect that a lot of the sh- uh, scenes are not shot in Taiwan. They're just sort of these art director creations, you know, like this um, grand, there's this whole scene at a Chinese restaurant, and there's a scene in like one of those, um, I guess, dance halls. But, you know, have you seen a Ho Shao Shan film? You've seen even the early Ho Shao Shan film, you know, because before Ho Shao Shan became like an art house altair, he made commercial films. I saw one of them last year. And he made these really cheesy 70s romance. I mean, you watch any of those. You watch an old Bridget Lin film. You can tell what Taiwan looks like in the era. And you know what kind of vibe you want to give off. Um, but, you know, they probably just watched one Edward Yang film and go, I want to be Edward Yang. Or he probably watched, like, City of Sadness and, like, oh, so this is what Taiwan looks like. It's the countryside. That's all it is. But, no, you watch a commercial film from 1970s Taiwan, you know it looks nothing like what it is in this film. And the thing is, I know that filmmaking cultures get other cultures wrong all the time. I mean, you know, China, Chinese films or Japanese film or Korean films don't exactly get America right, right? They don't exactly get life in the West correct, which is things that happen, which I don't, I'm, I'm not, I don't like that either. But, you know, America is the biggest film industry in the world in terms of resources, you know, they have the resource, they have the ability to get things right because they can hire people to do these research and they can hire the right art directors to recreate things and they can hire or they can find a Chinese friend who could at least get the credit, the Chinese and the credits correct. So it, it, it kind of frustrates me when American films don't get things right, you know, at least vaguely right would be good i mean i've never lived in taiwan i i just traveled to taiwan in the last couple of years i've seen a couple of taiwanese films from the era and i can already tell you that tiger tail didn't get it right so it's just very weird for me to pick up on these things and that's something that i know it's quite a pain when i watch films about asian americans or asian films or american take on asia i have that critical eye but it's something i can't help and i'm sorry i have to do it but it's something that really distracts me when it happens um like i said don't get me started on bad chinese on the credits i mean they have this huge mistake where you know it says a film by alan yang which literally means this is a film directed by Alan Yang, right? But in the Chinese, it says the producer is Alan Yang. It, I was just like, I was like gripping my hand, like guys, guys, watch a Chinese movie. Just watch the opening credits of a Chinese movie and copy all of those, you know. Then and then also at the end credits, they also mix up simplifying traditional Chinese for names, which is just like again, just a head slapper because I mean, it's just like. A face, you know, I did a whole Picard thing when I saw those Chinese credits. Um, I'm sorry to harp on on this, but anyway, this is a really big thing. It's a big thing, okay? If you want to be authentic, then be authentic. 
otherwise, then you're just sort of doing a Chinatown uh, or Panda Express version of a Chinese movie. And that's what this feels like. Um, Alan Yang whittled down a 205-page script to a 90-minute film, which, okay, maybe there's maybe 100 pages extra of stuff that you don't really need, but that's why the film feels a bit undercooked. Like, it's a very small story, and it's a very small-scale story, and it's a very personal experience story, but I don't feel he's saying anything that no one else has said about that experience. And, you know, the Chinese immigration experience have been, you know, done in that community for so long. And I'm not sure what Yang is bringing to it that's new. I mean, yeah, there's that whole romance, the, the romance that he left behind. If that's a film, that's great. You know, where he has to pick between two two women, the woman he really loves and the woman who's realizing his dreams. That's a great story on its own. And then there's a story about, you know, when Ping Rei is now old, he's retired, he's played by uh, Zima, who is a great actor. He was in The Farewell, who played, uh, he played Aquafina's dad. And here he's kind of has the lead role because he's playing the older version of the character. That thing about the dynamic between the strong and silent Chinese father and his American-born daughter who just wants to talk about her emotions all the time. Um, that feels very real. And because that's probably more autobiographical than biographical, um, that's a film right there, right? That's a story. That's a good story. And But then The Farewell already did it, kind of. Um, but that could be his own story. And then there's a story about Ping Rei um, after just moving to America and realizing that the American dream is a lot grittier and a lot tougher than he imagined. That's a film right there. But now you got three films blown into one, and it just feels really undercooked. Like nothing, you don't feel any big thing over it. And that's kind of sad because there are very strong things in the film. Also, to his credit, Alan Yen casts real Taiwanese actors in the flashback scene. So Li Hongqi um, plays uh, the younger version of the father. Li Hongqi is a, it's a very respectable uh, actor who's been in art house films and um, also commercial films. He did uh, a film called The Nato's Drunk for Chan So Chi, and he did um, a film called City of Last Things. Uh, for, uh, I forget, the, he's a Malaysian director, but he made it in Taiwan. But anyway, Li Hongqi is a very respectable actor and also playing his mom, Yuan Kui Mei, playing, who's, who's been in very, very famous 70s Taiwanese films. Um, so so we got real Taiwanese actors, authentic Taiwanese actors in these films, in these scenes, and which is great. I mean, a lot of people won't even cast Taiwanese actors. They'll just go from someone in China um, or from China. And then the whole accent would have been wrong and blah, blah, blah. But the thing is, Yang wouldn't have been able to pick it up because he can't tell between Taiwanese accented um, Chinese versus Chinese ac- mainland China accented Chinese. And that's something, you know, a director needs to pick up on to understand everything that his cast is saying. But he doesn't have that ability. Um So, you know, I know Asian American filmmakers, they want to make films about if it's not their experiences, then it's about their family's experience because they want to um, highlight their thing to American culture and they think it serves uh, it serves to fill a void in the culture, I suppose, in the popular culture. And they want to, you know, expel that, ex- you know, they want to put out their experiences. And I can understand that, especially after Crazy Rich Asians, right? And don't get me started on Crazy Rich Asians, by the way. I would, I would go on, I would do an entire show complaining about that movie. But the thing is, if you can't get the Asian part of Asian American right, then what's the point of doing it? 
you know, first of all, you really want to understand Asia is that Asians hate each other. <laughs> I mean, let's face it, real Asians. We don't, we don't, we're not in solidarity the way that Asian Americans think that we are, you know, like, because Asia, within Asia, there's so many different cultures in Asia. And, and if they want to just throw all that one into one thing, and that's a very problematic depiction of Asia, I think. And they really have to understand, try and understand the dynamics of Asia before trying to do Asian American. Because great, if you get the American part right, it's good for you. I mean, great. But the thing is, if you can't get the Asian part right, then you can't do a proper Asian American movie, I think. Um, there's a film last year, or a couple of years ago, it's actually the um, directorial debut of Kathy Yang, who did Birds of Prey, Dead Pigs. It's an excellent Asian American film because that one feels authentic. It's all set in China. And there are some foreign elements in that film, but most of it is, is pretty much all set in China. It's a Chinese story, and it's done with a very uh, Hollywood or American filmmaking style. And I think it's an excellent film, although it's very underseen because there's no American distribution yet. But I actually saw it on a on a plane, um, a Singapore Airlines flight. That's the only way I could see that film. But yeah, that's I think that's a very excellent example of a filmmaker who Asian American filmmaker who want to bring what she learned in America, growing up as American into a Chinese film setting. And that's an excellent example of, of I think, uh, a great Asian-American filmmaker who's been able to tell the root, her root, who go back to her root and tell a story from where she's from. And I think that's a, that's a great film. But Tiger Tail is not that film. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I mean, like I said, I don't want to be very down on it because uh, a lot of people kind of feel like films like these are kind of untouchable because they're doing very important things and they're um, they they have a, a very important purpose. But I just feel like I I feel like I, I'm qualified as an Asian person, an American person in Asia or as Asian American. Ha ha. Um, I can I think I can speak up about these things. You know, I don't have to I don't have to. Exp- you know, put a halo on your head and say, oh, you're doing this great thing. No, you have to do better. Please do better. I think I agree with your sentiment a little bit. For me, I didn't get a sense of what this film really wanted to be. It felt like it was trying to be a few different things. I appreciated that they were trying to go for an old film-style look. You know, with the eight, with the, what did they shoot it on? Um, 16 millimeter or 16 millimeter. Yeah. yeah. But for yeah, me, mil, yeah. that was, I mean, in comparison with the very modern HD look of the contemporary narrative that was going on, it was like a night and day thing. It was, it was very jarring for me. It was like, okay, here they want to be stylistic and, you know, um, a little bit nostalgic and, you know, they're, they're tapping into this this sense of almost old art house cinema, you know, that they're they're trying to you know latch into and popular culture and and reminiscence, uh, and then they're jumping into this sort of modern narrative that felt like it was just ripped out of a Wayne Wang movie, and the, <laughs> the two they just they didn't they didn't gel up for me. Um, I didn't feel that connection, and it's interesting too that. You know, you said he started out with a 205-page script because this is a very breezy movie, and I really felt like I didn't spend enough time with any of the characters in any of their iterations. 
right? Part of the motivation for the main character's sense of what he wants to do is because of his relationship with his mother. And really the sacrifice that he's making is in part on his mother's behalf, even though, you know, she doesn't really want that, right? It's it's like his mm-hmm. idea of, of what's going to be best for him and her. And explaining his relationship with her, but I never really got that sense because we spend more of the time with this character in his pursuit of his quote-unquote true love, right? And because of that, it felt like, well, he's a bit of a flighty boy, right? He's, you know... So why is he making this decision, you know, to, to, to take care of his mom? I, it just, it, the connections were not there. They hadn't spent enough time building them. So then when we get into this modern narrative, which the timeline is a bit disjointed in what it's trying to do, I think, in, in the way it establishes the storytelling. So I really wanted to spend a lot more time with um, the modern actors and especially with um, Sima's relationship with his daughter, played by Christine Ko, I felt they had a really good dynamic going back and forth, even though, as you said, this is nothing new. I mean, the, the idea of sort of the traditional-minded, especially and on the, on the sort of paternal side, um, closed-off, reserved, you know, Chinese father... We've seen this character. We've seen him in Ang Lee films. We've seen him in Wayne Wang films. In in a sense, it's almost a stereotype, right? And I think one of the great things about The Farewell as a point of comparison was that the characters there were, you know, not really stereotypes. I mean, they started to play with stereotype ideas, but then as you spent more time with those characters, you, you got to see the nuance of them. Where here, I think there's not a lot of nuance to these characters, right? Because they're not given enough time to breathe together. Um, and and by the end, I was, you know, it was like, was anything really resolved? Because it just felt like, for the most part, Zimla's character was just in an unhappy place. And he had been since he you know, made the decision to get in the car. Um, and so you have these you know, short, brief encounters, one with his um, wife, uh, Zen Zen, and then later with the adult character of Yun, played by a cameo that I kind of knew was coming, but the trailer kind of ruined it for me. And, <laughs> and you know, I'm like, oh, you know, okay. Might as well say it. We all big, know who it big is. Big cameo, it's Joan Chen yeah. on the screen, right? And she's like yeah. five, less than five minutes of dialogue, really. Um and so I'm like, okay, so you're going to have these two heavy hitters, you know, Tsuma and Joan Chen on the screen together, and and that's all you're going to give them? You know, that's all there is? It just, you know, there just really wasn't enough. And so I came away from it really, really wanting more because I felt like all I got was sort of a greatest hits, you know, of <laughs> Ang Lee characters and Wang Wang characters kind of uh, <laughs> compressed together somehow. And I and I, I feel, didn't want to say names, but you name names. Paul. Well, I mean, you come on. There. I mean, yeah, if you if you if you paid attention <laughs> to Asian American cinema, it's not like there's a large body of work, and that's why it's really hard to kind of, as you said, be negative on this film, because you want to see more films like this, you want to see more stories like this, 
but they need nuance. They need the nuance of something like the farewell. You know, they need the 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 time with the characters um, to to establish those relationships. I mean, by the end of the farewell, I really felt the connection for you know between Aquafina's character and her grandmother. You know, I felt that there, and her mom had an interesting story to tell. And even Simon's character, he wasn't in it that much, but his relationship. You know, all of that felt interesting it felt nuanced and it you know it was based on ideas that i think people find familiar but at the same time you know it went into new territory another case in point you know uh, you'll always be my maybe right i mean really taking the idea of characters like a father figure into different territory that you don't expect to see because you're used to seeing the stereotypes right um, and so something like that comes across as as interesting and new and fresh and believable because not everybody is the dour paternal father. And in this case, yeah, I understand. This is based on on reality in all likelihood. On, you know, I, I kept came away from this without even having to look it up, going, Okay, this is this is his story. You know, he's pulling this from from people he probably knows uh in reality, if it's not directly his father. Um but I think that you've gotta give it more details you've got to let us spend more time you've got to say all right the the important stuff is here with the present day relationships and i've got to take a bit away from this nostalgia because it's important but you know maybe i'm spending a bit too much time with that sort of you know artistic aspect and the aesthetics of this are amazing in some places when they go to america and the settings that you're seeing, the old laundromats. I mean, that's stuff that I recognized um, to some extent as, you know, in, in my vague memory, you know, uh, um, seeing places like that, people dressed like that. So there was attention to detail there where I think they got some things right, you know, whereas opposed, as you're saying, the, the Taiwan stuff is, is a bit off. So I found that to be pretty amazing because that was some money, there that they're having to spend, you know, for old cars and, and people in costume and, and, um, and, and just the look and the feel of things. And it wasn't a great deal of time spent there, but that was, those were some money shots there. Cause I was very impressed with that part. I mean, it's not the case that this is, um, this is cutting corners in, in any way, shape or form. It has a clear aesthetic vision of what it wants to present. It's just that some of it is, I think, presented, um, perhaps a little bit more with a bit more clarity uh, than as Kevin pointed out uh, other places. I think for a lot of Americans, they're not going to know, you know, they're not going to know the difference. They're going to look at this and go, Oh, okay. Yeah. That's old, you know, old timey, you know, Chinese-ness, you know, it all looks kind of the same. You put her in a colorful Chung Sam and you dress them up like a grease baller. And we, we recognize that to some extent as, you know, in, in American pop. So, Maybe yeah. if they're directing that at a more American audience than, say, a Taiwan audience or a more international Asian audience, that's maybe something that they decided they could get away with. Uh, any final thoughts on this, Kev? Well, I want to bring this out there. I mean, as <clears throat> if you talk about the resolution of the film, and I agree there's really not much of a resolution. What, what do you think? Where do you think that story could have gone? In a traditional Hollywood film, at a certain point, his old flame's love interest would, uh, 
you know, would, would be rekindled somehow, or, you know, they'd become best buds, you know, he, he'd be, he'd be in a new happy place as it were. Right. Um, to, to give it sort of that, uh, sugar coated, it's not, it's not all doom and gloom kind of an ending, but instead they just kind of, you know, leave it off as like, well, this is kind of where I came from and uh, I'm still in a bad place. <laughs> it's like, I mean, there could have been, I mean, the whole entire last couple of minutes of the film could be its own film. You can think about it. Just that section could be its own film. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, or you could have gone other places. Like you said, there has to be some kind of resolution to the character. I mean, yes, he lives with the regret of his past and yeah, but that's the, that's what you set up on. That's a setup. Is that yeah? He did terrible things, and well, not terrible things. It's not like he killed kids or anything, but you know, <laughs> he was just uh, unpleasant. Not unpleasant, but he's an unhappy person. Yeah, he grumpy starts out as an unhappy person. Grumpy old man. Yeah, grumpy old man. So I guess at the end he finds some sort of connection with his daughter, even though they're not very explicit about it. But there could have been more there. Like, well, couldn't you do more to connect with your daughter, or couldn't you connect with her some more? on a more more um uh a solid way you know that people can actually see instead of just seeing through one frame at the end i mean yeah it's nice and artsy but it doesn't feel authentic um or maybe he finds new romance or maybe decides to move back to taiwan and has to um us um readjust himself to a country that's changed um if he wishes i mean if they want to tell that's that's a, a film unto itself as well um and yeah, it just there could have been so many ways to resolve it, and without having to do that whole resolve of a neat bow tie or whatever. And I guess you know that's what hipster filmmakers want to do. They don't want to resolve things neatly, but you don't have to resolve things neat, you know. But there could have been ways where you could at least bring some changes so that the character actually you know experiences something that makes the story worth telling. listening to the East Screen West Screen podcast. Visit Comcast.com for more. All right, I think that's going to wrap it up for this episode. You have been listening to the East Screen West Screen podcast. Our theme music was composed by Rob Jabor of Schnauzer Radio Orchestra. And if you would like to be part of the show, you too can get in touch with us via the website at concast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at concast. You can email us at eastscreen at gmail.com. And you can find us at Facebook at East S West S. Uh, as always, I please do urge you to keep up with uh, Kevin and all that he's doing as he uh, locks down from home, I guess, <laughs> uh, as the rest of us are doing. <laughs> so, sir, where can they find out more about you? So I am on Twitter. I am at the Golden Rock. That's one word, the Golden Rock. Um, that's pretty much the main, my main uh, um, social media these days. Um, you can come and check out my company's website, www.zakatenmedia.com. Uh, that's Z-A-K-K-A-T-E-N media.com. Um, if you want to check out some of the films I've worked on, I mean, I have at least four films on a pipeline that's waiting to be released. Uh, I have um, my Prince Edward, which has been um, 
was supposed to come out, I think, late April, but now pushed. Um, Sook Sook, which is the gay uncle love story. Um, and I have I'm Living It, which is Aaron Kwok as a Madonna refugee story. Those three films are awaiting release in Hong Kong. And um, there's also uh, The Bravest, which is a firefighter film that I've done. And because that's a big Sony project, it's now on iTunes Store pretty much around the globe. I think at least in Hong Kong, I just checked the U.S. It's also there. So I did the subtitles for that film. And I have a couple. Of, oh, I also did If You're the One, the Patrick Kong film that's coming out on video next week. Um, the new New Year one. So you can look forward to that. And I have like at least four or five more films waiting to be released this year. So um, and I'll, I'll I'll tell you guys what those what those films are as uh, once release dates are being announced and everything. Maybe we if we learn something from all of this, it will be the opening up of uh, movie platforms more on a more worldwide basis, or maybe not. Uh, well, that's a debate for a future episode. <laughs> yeah, should we spend yeah should we spend entire episode debating this next week? Because China has done this, um, and America has done it now. Yeah. UK has done it. We could we go into this next yeah, week. Maybe next week. Um, so yeah, we'll be talking about that. I do have a future episode with um, uh, Kenneth Brorson scheduled at some point, a couple weeks down the pipe, uh, to talk about Emily Ting's latest film, uh, which is Go Back to China, which I think may have some things in common uh, with uh, some of the ideas we've talked about with this film, Tiger Tail. If you're not familiar with Emily Ting, she is the independent director who directed already tomorrow in Hong Kong um, a few years back. And so <laughs> this is uh, her follow-up film. So be looking forward to that and talking about other things with Kevin as we go forward in these weeks. So until then, this has been the East Screen, West Screen podcast saying stay distant, stay safe, and wash your hands, people. And we'll see you next time. See you next time, everybody. Thank you.